Hi, and welcome. I am joining you live from the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank in the world's best capitalized country. And we've got a live stream today to talk about things like what's priced into the equity markets, why we like some bonds over some of the equity markets out there, currencies, commodities, tech stocks, and of course, our favorite part is all your questions. Um, I want to give a special warm welcome to our clients in Asia who are joining us on our Circle One UBS app. It's, a, uh, it's an exciting way to connect to the live streams and all our content uh, that's out there. And uh, if you're in Asia and you're not watching on the app, make sure you head over to UBS.com Circle One to get all set up there. Um, again, please keep your uh, questions coming. We've got another all-star cast with us today. We have Nadia, we've got Fred, we've got Dominic. Um, and so let's get right into it. Uh, you know, we're looking, uh, we're looking at this US equity market. Seems like there's a lot priced in here now, but Nadia, why don't you tell us about it? Yes, Mark, you know, the U.S. equities market is up 7% year to date, and it's really defied expectations of many and shown an incredible amount of resiliency, despite the fact that we had the regional banking liquidity turmoil in March. But the market rally has also pushed up valuations even more, you know, at a time when the earnings picture really hasn't improved. So the S&P 500 is now trading at an 18.3 times forward price to earnings. That's above the longer term average, but I would say it's more than that. You know, as you can see here in the chart, um, there are only a few instances in history where the market has sustained an above 18 times forward PE. That was during the dot-com period in the late 1990s and during the pandemic when a massive amount of liquidity was pumped into the system. So historically also, such an elevated valuation is usually associated with an acceleration in earnings and double digit earnings growth. And Mark, we just don't have that environment today. You know, we're in an environment of uncertainty. There's this constant tug of war between soft landing and hard landing. So we just don't see that 10% plus profit growth over the next year. You know, in fact, Mark, what we're looking for is about a 5% contraction in earnings this year. So we think that there's this disconnect between elevated valuation and deteriorating earnings outlook, and we expect that to be corrected. You know, while no one has a crystal ball, of course, but as you can see uh, on the next slide, you know, what's really supporting our cautious view are the leading indicators that historically has a strong correlation with market performance in earnings, they are suggesting a more challenging environment ahead for equities. You know, if you look at the ISM manufacturing PMI, which is in a downward trend and it's been in contraction territory now for the last five months, as well as the lending standard survey, here we're showing the senior loan officer opinion survey, um, that has been tightening for the last couple of quarters. Now, that's even before the banking crisis that we saw of the banking turmoil in, in March. You know, that's suggesting lower and contracting earnings for the S&P 500 this year. Uh, you know, we'll get the next quarterly update of the Senior Loan Officer Survey on um, May 8th. You know, all eyes will be on that, just given how vital credit is 
to an economy. But some of the other more recent data in the last couple of weeks, you know, including the um, the Fed's Beige Book, the Dallas um, Fed Banking Condition Service, and the NFIB Small Business Service, all are showing incrementally tighter credit conditions since the banking turmoil. So, Mark, we continue to be cautious, um, particularly on the second half of the year. You know, this is a market that is really pricing in uh, near perfection. It's not appropriately reflecting the downside risk that we see in earnings ahead. We think the economy and companies will really start to feel that intensifying drag of tighter monetary policy and now tighter lending conditions. So we're looking for a correction in the S&P 500 back down towards the 3,800 level um, by the time we get to the end of the year. That's about a 7% downside from current levels, Mark. All right. Thanks, Nadia. And, you know, for another take on this, we're going to turn to Fred. And, you know, Fred, the bond market often gets a lot of credibility for being smarter, more professional than equities, having a more rational view. But, you know, in a rising rate environment, I'm not sure that the market always uh, really gets the bond market, uh, particularly the rates market, gets it right. So what do you what do you want to say about that? Well, firstly, Mark, I'd have to agree that bond strategists are smarter than equity strategists. So I fully agree with that. But looking at the macroeconomic data, you know, Nadia touched on a lot of this. Uh, but more globally, when we look at, you know, developed economies, uh, headline CPI is cooling. That's good news. Since late last year, we saw sort of record year-on-year -year headline CPI figures across the United States, across Europe, even in Japan of all places. But now we're in a much better situation where headline CPI in the States has peaked at 9% and is currently tracking around 5%. Now, that's obviously showing credibility around monetary policy. We did see one of the most rapid cycles of rate increases since the 1980s. So that has had an effect on bringing inflation down. But the dilemma for the central banks at the moment is that core inflation remains too high, much higher than their price stability targets. There is a link between core CPI and the labor market. And I think we all know that labor market statistics at the moment still paint a backdrop of a very tight labor market. The official unemployment rate in the United States is three and a half percent. That's very tight by historical standards. Of course, that data is a little bit rear window. It looks, it's historical. When we look at a bit more high frequency data, we are starting to see some weakness or some loosening up in labor market conditions. So initial claims have been trending up, things like the quit rate, uh, open, open positions, things do seem to be loosening up in the labor market. So that also points a pretty good backdrop in terms of a peak in terms of policy rates. But until you start to see core inflation closer to central bank targets, it's very difficult for the Fed, for the ECB, for the SMB to pivot in terms of their narrative around wanting to continue to hike rates. But what does that all mean? It basically means that we do think monetary policy is working. It does work with a lag. 
We have also seen through this rate hiking cycle, some financial instability, particularly in the regional banking sector, or if you look at areas like commercial real estate. So this tightening, this aggressive tightening of monetary policy has sort of started to have an impact in terms of financial stability, and more importantly, in terms of growth. We are starting to see developed world growth decelerating. And that sort of leads into what do the central banks do going forward? We do think heading into next week, there's a Fed meeting, there's an ECB meeting. They're most likely going to hike again, but we could be very close to the end of that rate hiking cycle. As my chart shows, there is a bit of a disconnect between where the Fed thinks the policy rate needs to get to and how long it should stay there and what the market thinks. You can see that the market on the right-hand side is already starting to price in some rate cuts by the end of the year. I think from our point of view, there's a lot of information to be given through the yield curve. The yield curve has inverted. It is inverted across the entire term structure. What that tells us is that there really is diminishing benefits of further rate hikes. The more the Fed, the ECB hikes, the more the costs around growth and financial stability. They're not naive to that. They understand it. But at the moment, with inflation as elevated as it is, they're going to keep this narrative of having to hike. But we think that growth dynamic and potential further financial instability is leading us into a pause very soon. We've already got some questions in. One of them being, uh, you know, when will the Fed cut? And I th- and I was tr- and you know, you kind of get to it. And I think the point that we're trying to make is the market. We we got to, in effect, beat the spread a little bit. And it's like the market thinks that the they're going to be able to cut already this year, but the risks that they're not, and the likelihood that they're not going to be able to cut because of the things you said about the the unemployment picture and the fact that, you know, core is still 5% uh, makes makes it seem like the market, I don't know if you call it optimistic or not, but the the market seems to be really pulling forward these these rate cuts. And if we don't get them and the inflation stays uh, hot, you know, you you pointed out the flip side of this, which is that um, you could move towards something that in the past we've called the head fake scenario or it looks starts to look like something like stagflation where uh you know the rates are are the rates stay high to deal with the inflation but it's really having an impact on the economy um but uh yeah but look let's let's keep moving forward here we're we're concluding the public section of our live stream and we're going to go to the client only segment where we talk about our top ideas and our latest positioning Uh, for those watching on linkedin i hope you make it a great rest of the day all right we're gonna stick with fred here and uh you know when we start getting into the potential scenarios some of which i just uh went on about in a little more detail what should investors do yeah, thanks, Mark. So, so at the moment, one of our one of our key tactical investment recommendations. So, tactical being an investment view over the next one to three months, is we are recommending investors to reduce a little bit of their U.S. equity exposure 
And that's sort of in line with, with what Nadia mentioned earlier, namely that multiples still look a little bit overvalued and earnings expectations a little bit too optimistic. And we're recommending that with that deallocation from US equities, they put that into high quality fixed income. Now, the reasons we like high quality fixed income are quite simple, and it is linked to what I mentioned earlier. Namely, we are in a backdrop where inflation is starting to come down. Admittedly, it's not coming down fast enough uh, at the core level for central banks to suddenly uh, pivot on policy and start cutting rates, but inflation is decelerating. And in conjunction with that, growth is decelerating as well. So those two dynamics are a great backdrop for fixed income. Both decelerating inflation and decelerating growth puts downward pressure on nominal yields and high quality fixed income, which is priced off nominal yields, typically tends to rise in value. So we think deallocating out of equities, particularly US equities and into high quality fixed income is a great, it, so at the moment, it's, it's a great opportunity. Also, by virtue of the factors you can see in front of you, and the fact that central banks did undertake one of the most aggressive rate hiking cycles we've seen since the 80s over the last 12 months, you've actually got yield on the table for the first time in a long time. I think since 15 years, um, you know, not that long ago, we were all sort of contending with negative interest rates in Europe. Now, for high quality fixed income, you're actually earning yield with minimal default risk if, without doing anything. So you can see on this scatter plot that when the outright level of interest rates is as high as it is today, that portends pretty good forward returns for asset classes like investment grade or high quality bonds. The other dynamic, which you can see on the columns on the right, is what it does is it also provides you a nice buffer to potential mark-to-market volatility. As we discussed earlier, it's very difficult to know when the central banks are gonna be done with these rate hikes. We do think that that time is coming near, but while we're transitioning or inflecting towards that point, there's gonna be ongoing volatility in rates, but the fact that you are earning quite a nice yield by just sitting there, quite a nice carry, it provides a great buffer. So you can see that if you buy a five-year treasury today, that yield would need to move up 77 basis points over the next year to basically lose money or break even on that investment. If we get another scenario where the US goes into a hard landing and the Fed deems it appropriate to start cutting rates aggressively, which they typically do in a rate cutting cycle, then the potential capital gains or prospective returns are going to be mid to high single digits, even double digits, depending on the pace at which they cut. So having said all of that, we think this tactical view at the moment is, is appropriate. All right. Thanks, Fred. And uh, look, one of the reasons that uh, organizations like uh, Euromoney have uh, called UBS's discretionary mandates the best in the world is because we try to play the whole chessboard. And that means looking at things beyond uh, bonds and stocks. Uh, so for this, we're gonna bring in uh, Dominic. And uh, you know, how are you thinking about ways investors can diversify their return streams? 
Well, I think, Mark, I like to be a little bit of the balancing force to Fred's and Nadia. They were really bearish. And I've actually, if I think about commodities, I have a quite optimistic view. You might say, well, how is that possible? I think I bring three thoughts to the table. So first of all, there are supply stories to be told in commodities, which is quite unique. And we've seen OPEC cutting production by almost a million barrels per day. That's going to impact uh, supply availability from May onwards. So I think that's one thing which is quite unique. And in our view, should really give underlying support to higher oil prices. We're still looking at oil heading towards $100 per barrel. The other element is still we have very low inventory in agriculture, for example, and we still have weather risks out there. Now, these weather risks are always there, but they have really increased in recent years. So do we have a supply story to tell, which is quite different to what we just heard a lot of on the demand side. The second point on the supply side, I think investment in natural resources in, uh, let's say, getting things out of the ground has been quite low in recent years. And we see that happening uh, in the US. You're going to see probably um, supply growth in, in, I would say, oil supply, but it's going to just going to be quite modest, maybe 0.6 million barrels per day. And that's not going to lead us to a situation where basically the market is going to be balanced. And then we also have situation like in copper, for example, where basically we have always been expecting supply hitting the market, but underinvestment is leading to a push out on some of these expectations. So we have a, a quite unique supply story. So I think that that's one thing to consider. The other element, we still have China accelerating. So all the negativity that we heard, maybe not fully applied to China. You can say China is accelerating on the consumer side. Uh, maybe that's your wooden focus when it comes to commodity on iron ore or steel, but you want to focus on OPEX. They want to travel. Well, they're going to fly a little bit more. That means more oil demand. Oil demand is going to hit record highs in uh, in the second half of the year. So there is a, a positive story in China being the biggest consumer of natural resources. And then there is the structural factors. We all want to get rid of oil. We all want to go carbon neutral. Um, how do we do that? There are some green elements that lead to double-digit gains, at least growth rates in, in, in commodities like copper, for example. So I think there are stories to be told here in, in the asset class of commodities, which are quite positive. And last point to highlight, maybe, is also that the returns are not just higher prices. There are actually three components to commodity return. Price appreciation. We have a curve which is downward slope. That means you can, even though prices do not appreciate, you're going to get probably 3% on a broad index level. And because you're obviously invested, fully funded, you also get the benefit of having these very juicy yields on, on the bond side. So you get almost 5% on your cash collateral. So if nothing happens, you're probably still going to get close to high single digit return. Is that not attractive? I find it quite interesting. Now, last point maybe on the commodity to highlight is gold um, has gone up quite a fair bit. Um, a lot of demand, uh, particularly, particularly from the central bank side. We do think gold's going to go to $2,200. Um, I think at these levels, it's a good hedge because the dollar is expected to go softer and rates at some point go down. But I wouldn't say that this gold is like Hotel California. You check in, you never check out. This at these levels is probably not the main story. It's more of a tactical view. Well, that was a cultural tour de force of metaphors from a uh, world traveler, uh, Dominic. And uh, take us around the world one more time by talking about uh, currencies. Well, we do have a weaker dollar 
a narrative uh, for 2023. And it's basically a reversal of what we have seen last year. Think about what was the three most important factors that shaped markets. Number one, the Fed hiking. Now we come close to a top in the Fed, Fed rate hike, potentially rate cuts, so that takes support away. Number two, we had a, a terms of trade shock in Europe where we had gas prices spiraling up. That's in reverse. Gas prices in Europe are lower than uh, pre-war. Uh, that's helpful. That's not so good for the dollar, but it's helpful for Europe. And the third one, we were all challenged by growth outside the US being down due to some policies that was limiting China's uh, growth. Now, this is in reverse as well. So I think all these three factors suggest a weaker dollar down the road. What does it mean for you as an investor? I want a hedge dollar. I want a hedge dollar longs. If you're a euro investor, pound investor, Swiss franc investor, or yen investor. When it comes to maybe an active position, I think the focus should be probably more towards um, what is really cheap. If you look at the chart that I brought you here, you see some of the currencies being extremely cheap, like the Swiss franc in real terms, like the yen, for example. Um, these currencies are, for me, things you want to take exposure. Also, for example, in Japan, inflation is gearing up, but there's going to be a policy shift down the road over the next six months. Last point to think about maybe is also the Aussie, which has really underperformed also our expectation, but I think the RBA is underpriced. Good fundamentals should still call for a solid run in the second half of the year. So plenty to do as an investor to manage currency risk. Exactly, and I, I think, you know, playing the whole chessboard and thinking beyond just equities and uh, fixed income is important, especially in markets like this. Now, we're going to come back to uh, equities because we're already getting some questions about, you know, because really, I think, you know, Dominic, you were saying this is a bearish view, but, you know, just highlighting what's priced in on the S&P 500 is not really filling out the full picture uh, for how we're recommending people have equity exposure. So Nadia, help us out here and walk us through how we think investors should position on the equity side. Yeah, we might be a bit bearish on the U.S. market, but there are tons of opportunities in equities outside of the U.S. Now, you know, beyond the stress valuation and deteriorated earnings outlook that we already discussed, you know, Mark, I would also say within the U.S., you know, the breadth is quite narrow. We've only seen about 30% of the S&P 500 constituents actually outperform the index this year. You know, on average, that's typically over 50%. So the performance that we've had in the S&P 500 has really just been driven by a handful of mega cap companies. And the reason why we're highlighting this is that this narrow market leadership is usually associated with more late cycle dynamics rather than the start of a new bull market. So this is why we are reiterating our least preferred stance on global equities and US equities. But again, it does not mean to go out and sell all your equities exposure. It's really about allocation and sizing positions uh, appropriately for the short to medium term tactical window to really help manage risk and reward. So what we're doing, Mark, as you know, we're advising clients and we continue to do that to really diversify beyond the US and beyond growth. You know, as you can see here in the chart on the far left, the gap between earnings yield and the 10 year bond yield is quite narrow in the US market compared to other regions. 
that's another indication that U.S. equities is expensive. So we think regions outside of the U.S. are likely to outperform just due to the better economic growth and valuations are less demanding, particularly in emerging markets. You know, historically, uh, emerging markets tend to do well in an environment where U.S. rates are moving lower, commodity prices are higher, and the dollar weakens. You've heard Fred and Dominic discuss earlier, we expect all three of those things to really happen this year. You know, as you can see there in the middle chart, emerging markets typically outperform developed markets when the dollar weakens. You know, falling bond yields and a weaker dollar should really help those EM issuers' ability to service their dollar-denominated debt. And then we have China. China reopening tailwind should really also help you know, we recently lift our, lifted our um, full year 2023 GDP forecast for China to 5.7% growth after we got better than expected first quarter GDP numbers last week. You know, that came in at 4, 4.5%. Um, China's recovery should also help other emerging market co uh, countries, you know, especially those in Southeast Asia like Thailand. So we're looking for uh, double digit total returns from emerging markets over the rest of the, the year. That's being largely driven by earnings growth. And the valuation is relatively attractive as well. You have a forward PE at around 11 and a half times. That's a discount to the longer term average and developed markets like the US. You know, but uh, I wouldn't limit yourself just to emerging markets. There are other opportunities outside the US we also see select opportunities in Europe, particularly German equities, which you can see there on the chart on the far right. You know, they should benefit from, you know, the consumer-led China recovery, as well as lower European gas prices that you heard Dominic talked about earlier. And German equities valuation is trading at 11 and a half times forward PE. That's larger than the usual 10%. Um, you know, that we see discount to the uh, MSCI um, uh, EMU. So Mark, we're continuing to advise clients to really sell some of that strength that you're seeing in the US and tech and diversify um, into areas like uh, emerging markets as well as select opportunities in Europe, particularly Germany. Well, thank you. And, you know, if I was gonna kind of summarize a little bit, it, it, you know, for, this whole period where rates kept falling all the way to negative, you know, in the equity space, you could buy just just buy the S&P 500, just buy the NASDAQ, these big indices, and you would do well. But it makes sense now that, uh, you know, we're looking at a totally different world, a world with uh, inflation and a, and a world where rates have gone up that, you know, the equity strategies that worked so well say for the past 10 years are not necessarily going to work for the next 10 years. And, you know, we think this plays to our strength looking globally, looking across asset classes um, and, you know, seeking out those opportunities below the index level and by sectors or regions or themes. So, uh, so far it's been playing out pretty well, um, but there's of course a lot more work to do ahead. Um, I think we've got time for a couple of questions. Uh, maybe circling back to the United States and some of the risks that are floating out there. Um, jump ball, Nadia and Fred, maybe you both have something to say on the debt ceiling in the United States and how that's playing into our thinking. 
Yeah, I would say, you know, we'll get some additional information soon on the debt ceiling. Um, specifically, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellow will provide an update to the X date either later this week or early next week. I mean, that is when the Treasury really runs out of cash and borrowing capacity. Um, it's not yet certain what date that will be this summer. You know, so far, what we're seeing is that tax receipts are coming in weaker than expected. Um, you know, partially because the equity markets were weak in 2022, that resulted in less realized capital gains. So there is a risk that the X date does get pulled forward. There's some chatter about it could be as early as June rather than the previously thought July, August timeframe. We have seen a bit of a jump in risk premium for shorter dated treasury bills in the last week. I'm sure Fred will talk about the um, fixed income market a little bit more, but you know, uh, let me focus on the equity markets. You know, there's like going to be a lot of uh, brinkmanship in Washington, usually as they always is around uh, raising the debt ceiling. So this could be a source of volatility, uh, Mark, in coming months, as you alluded to. But historically, just to put things in context, you know, the market performance around debt ceilings um, deadlines, uh, you know, we had one in 2011, uh, 2013. They were mixed, you know, and uh, what, that suggests to us is that the broader macro environment is more important for performance. But the S&P 500 did decline by about 6% during the one month period leading up to the 2011 episode, but did uh, uh, increase about 2% um, in the 2013 episode. But I, I just want to provide the backdrop for the 2011 episode. This was a time when the market was also facing the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. We also had the S&P downgrade in the US sovereign debt from AAA status. And we had concerns around recession just given the weaker macro environment. Now, Mark, there's an argument that can be made that the, today's environment might have some similarities to 2011, given our concerns around the macro environment going forward in the second half of the year. So we'll see how it plays out. But I think that it does feel like volatility could start to pick up in the equity markets as we approach the summer months. All right. Th thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, volatility is so low, it, it, it's going to pick up probably for some reason. Um, and that ha apparently some of these messages have uh, struck with some of our uh, people. We're getting questions to drill a little deeper on the fixed income side, you know, given that uh, we've had a rally in treasuries. Fred, describe in a little more detail where we're seeing the top opportunities you know, even on a very short tactical basis, given some of the recent moves we've had. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. So, so no doubt there's been quite a decent rally across fixed income or across rates. Um, we think it can run further from here. Uh, when we do look at market pricing, as we touched on earlier, there is an expectation building into markets that the Fed will be pivoting in the second half of this year and cutting rates. But when we look at that pricing, it's quite a mild sort of rate cutting profile. And when we link that to history, we know that when the Fed deems it appropriate to stop hiking, uh, the time between the last hike and the first rate cut is actually quite short. So the Fed has told us they want to keep policy around 5% and hold it there for a while. Well, history would beg differently because the time between that last hike and first cut is actually quite short. But secondly, once they do start cutting, they go hard and fast. 
And this is not priced in the market at the moment. So in a hard landing scenario, the Fed would need to go hard and fast, and that would turbocharge fixed income returns. We're not forecasting a hard landing scenario, but given that is a potential scenario, and by virtue of the fact, as we talked about earlier, yields are very high, we just believe that the current risk return in high quality fixed income is appropriate. In the more sort of cyclical growth sensitive parts of fixed income, such as high yield, uh, there we have a more neutral stance. We do think that default risk is going to rise going forward from here, but the cost of carry of running short positions in high yield is quite impunitive. And we do see selective opportunities in the high yield seg segment. And here the yields are even more attractive between eight and 10%. So we're not advocating overweights in high yield. We're more neutral, but we are saying focus on selectivity here. All right, well, we are out of time. So just to recap, we see this market pricing in a lot of good things happening. Uh, to the equity market. Uh, therefore, in a robust portfolio, this is a time where we'd probably be more allocated to fixed income. Within the equities, one of the reasons that that allocation is lower is it's primarily focused on, on the US equities looking expensive. We see more opportunities in EM in Asia, and then some of that transmitting into opportunities, say in Germany or in consumer stocks in Europe that can benefit from the resurgence in Asia. Um, and then play the whole chessboard. Think of Dominic, think of currencies, think of commodities as well. Uh, we're gonna end it here. We look forward to our next live stream and more of your questions and uh, make it a great day. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.